All right, welcome back to the show. This is something new we're hearing about today. Some school districts still allowing students to use communal water fountains at school. Our show contributor, John Jang, has that report. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. A quick question for you. Do you feel that it's safe to be using a water fountain right now? With everything that we know about COVID-19 and how it spreads, our need to wear masks all the time, sanitizing our hands very thoroughly, well, just the idea of using a communal water fountain is a non-starter for a lot of people, including myself. So then, the next question is, why are students in the Chilliwack School District being allowed to do this? Rob Harry is the parent of one such student in Chilliwack, and he joins us now on the show. Rob, does it make any sense to you that your student would be allowed to use the water fountain, or anybody else for that matter, in the school, considering how inherently dangerous that can be? Uh, no, it doesn't make any sense. And, it's, and what's going on is uh, the district is uh, allowing all students in, in, in all schools to use the public water fountains with their mouths, not just as bottle stations. And it's part of the, re- the safety restart plan. It's been there all year. Um, the other districts have totally put blockers on them and dealt with it, but uh, not Chilliwack. Well, that alone tells me that certain school districts have identified this as a possible threat and have wisely decided to make it unusable to just take that away. So again, it seems rather obtuse that other school districts might just turn the other cheek and maybe not take this as seriously. And and it's not just the fact that the kids are sharing the fountain. It's the fact that, well, it is, but once one gets in there and uses it and another one uses it it's not the, and, and then they've got the kids that don't use it because they know better uh it's still getting through the cohorts that's what my concern is because they don't have the best distancing and stuff in schools as it is but and that won't help the situation so right and rob uh your child who is a student did they bring this to you and your attention because they used it themselves and they're now worried about what could happen to them or did they share this concern with you because they are seeing other students use it and they are still worried about it no, they just been bringing it to my attention that it's that that they feel it's not safe. Okay, it's coming from the kid. <laughs> right off the bat, and uh, I mean, I've posted it on a few sites, and a lot of people are really, really upset about it. So, well, actually, I was going to ask if you had talked to other parents about this and what their response was like. I'm assuming now that most of them probably uh, can't be too thrilled about this. Uh, they don't like it. I mean, they should not be allowed. Right. And so, really, the easiest thing to address this concern on behalf of the parents, the students, even the teachers, or anybody else involved here, would be to just follow the footsteps of the other school districts and shut down these fountains or block them off so that you can't actually use them. Yes. Water stations, I get it, but not but mouth contact? There should be no way. It's absolutely no. I mean, in public places, they're shutting them down. Why are they in schools? I mean... And Rob, as a parent, how satisfied are you right now with the current COVID-19 safety measures that are in place for your child at school every day? Not completely. I mean, the mask mandate isn't, isn't far enough. Um, it should be uh, all, all the way around, and it should be in elementary schools as well. My, my, my elementary school child wears it anyway, because he's been instructed, but it shouldn't be just on the parents, because there's some people that don't believe in this COVID thing, and that's, that's hurting us even more. And before we let you go, Rob, if you knew that Dr. Bonnie Henry or Jennifer Whiteside, the education minister, were listening to this right now, what is the one message you would have for them today? We need to protect our children. There's a lot of things that they would not let the adults do that they're letting the kids do in school. 
All right, he is Rob Harry, concerned parent of a Chilliwack student, not pleased with the fact that water fountains are still open and available at schools in Chilliwack. And for the record, this contributor has reached out to the Chilliwack School District for comment or clarification, but have not heard back as of yet. However, in an email correspondence between Rob and a school district official that was shared with me, they did confirm that this was part of the protocols since the beginning of the school year, stipulated by the Ministry of Education and the Provincial Health Officer. Back to you, Mike. All right, thank you for that, John. That's John Jang. He's a contributor here on this. We start at Peace Arch Park and Liberal MLAs asking the B.C. government here, what is up with the cross-border fraternizing going down, going on down at Peace Arch Park? Let's check in now with Trevor Halford, B.C. Liberal MLA for Surrey White Rock. Very pleased to welcome him to this show. Trevor, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I know you live near there. It's right in your riding, and you live near the Peace Arch Park there. Can you tell me, can you describe what's happening there? For, for people who are not aware uh, of the situation there with the, with the very lax border restrictions and people gathering, what is going on there? Sure. So, yeah, yeah, you're correct. I, I do live down there, and uh, it's a great community. And it is a, a border community, and I, I literally live half a block from the United States. Uh, so, as your listeners probably know, is that we've got Peace Arch Park. It's a very large park. It's uh, half of it, or more than half of it, is a provincial park. And it's been shut down. The, the provincial side of it has been shut down for a number of months, um, basically due to this issue. Uh, because at the beginning of the pandemic, we had tents in every gathering uh, on the provincial side of the park. So the province decided to shut that, that down, which I thought was the right move. But what's happened is since that time, everybody's migrated over to this very, very small area on the American side, which is basically a little bit more than a football field, um, to set up tents. And in there, all you have to do is cross a ditch. You can get on the United States side. You do not have to go through customs, and you can set up a tent and and meet people um, all day long. And so what we're seeing is basically, especially during the weekends, it's turning into a tent city. Like, we had upwards of over 75 tents there uh, last weekend. And, you know, at a time when we're all being asked to do more, that's basically what I was asking the Premier to do, is just a little bit more and to work with the state of Washington and try and get a fix to this issue. Okay, let me. Okay, speaking of Premier John Horgan, he was asked about this yesterday, and let's have a listen to what he said. Here's Horgan. If uh, we see persistent concerns around Peace Arch, I'll certainly raise that with the federal government, and they can take action uh, with their counterparts in Washington, D.C. But this is not an area that's regulated by the states and the provinces, and I'm hopeful that uh, those people who are coming together to see loved ones in that international space are doing so safely, and uh, I'm confident uh, I've not seen any advice from Dr. Henry that this is a major issue. Okay, but so he's basically saying it's not his jurisdiction. This is federal jurisdiction, but your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. if we all took that approach, if we all took uh, the Premier's approach there in terms of our responsibility, I think we'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, for him to abdicate responsibility on such an important issue, I think is... Uh, I think is very disappointing. And like what, said, what is what is your concern? Is your concern like COVID COVID spread? Oh, a hundred percent. I think, and that's the reason that we shut down the the provincial side of the park. Right. And that's a move that I applauded. Is for that exact reason. So um, for him to say that he doesn't have any concerns with it, I I think there's a bit of a credibility issue there because they obviously did have concerns with it. They shut down the provincial side of Peace Arch Park. Okay, we got so, and, yeah, yeah, we got Valentine's Day coming up, and I guess that's heightened some of the yeah. concerns here. Could there be going to be more gatherings down there? And Horgan was asked about that yesterday as well. Here's what he said: 
Far be it for me to uh, get in the way of uh, those who love each other. Uh, but uh, again, these are issues for the federal government to deal with. Okay, so I don't know, is it like cross-border cuddling going on down there okay. on, on Valentine's Day? He's not worried about it. Your thoughts? Well, uh, I'm worried about it. And, you know, yeah. I just want to point out something and, sure. and to everybody that's listening here. In that comment of who is he to stand in the way of people that, you know, have relationships and love each other. Right. Um, last October, I lost my grandfather. And we have not been able to have a memorial service for him because we're respecting um, the regulations that are in place. My story is very similar to a lot of families that have stories that haven't met their grandchildren for the first time, that haven't been able to say goodbye to a, to a parent that was passing away. For him to take that approach, I think, is completely irresponsible. It's disingenuous, and uh, frankly, it's a lack of leadership. Okay, speaking to Liberal MLA Trevor Halford, he represents Surrey-White Rock in the B.C. legislature. He lives right next to the uh, Peace Arch Park, concerned about the gatherings going on there. Have a listen to this, Trevor. This is uh, Len Saunders, who's an immigration lawyer just across the border in Washington State. He was on the Linda Steele show yesterday, and here he is on efforts being made to police the behavior down there at the park. The gentleman who runs it, Ranger Rick, he's kind of the ambassador of the park, He's been very conscientious, making sure that all the tents are in one area, people social distance. He'll go up to groups and say, hey, no more than five people, keep your distance. So they've been very good at trying to maintain the social distancing in the park. Okay, Trevor, he says Ranger Rick is on patrol yeah. down there. So what's Ranger the problem? Rick. Yeah, Ranger Rick's doing a great job. Uh, yeah. He is. I've, I've seen him firsthand as I've, I've walked uh, past the street down there. But I think that immigration lawyer, too, is he's actually doing business out of that park. Um, is when I listen to that on the Linda Steele show, I think he meets clients in that park. And if I'm, I'm pretty confident that's what was said. And, and that's, you know, I understand people are, are meeting in that park. But when you're gathering in a tent, um, it's very hard to, you know, I, I don't know how you police social distance. When people are going in and out of tents and setting them up for the day, I, I'm not sure how you, how you police that. Okay, I find the whole situation quite bizarre in a lot of ways that you've got this international area where people can just wander across the border without having to show a passport or anything. It's just bizarre. Like, why is that being tolerated? That's a good question. That park has always been a shared park, and yeah. there's not a lot of signage there. So, you know, as, as immediately as you cross into the ditch, and there's landmarks that will show you what side of the border you're on. You're on either the Canadian or the American um, there's RCMP out there quite frequently patrolling, but it, you know, to me, it's a very, you know, at this time during nine 11, um, that park was shut down immediately. Right. And, right. uh, you know, so there, it, it has been done before and at a, at a point where we're in such a, a, you know, a global pandemic and the Washington numbers, uh, were climbing quite dramatically through 2020. I'm, I'm not sure why we continue to let this happen. Okay, so you're saying shut the park down, like on both sides of the border. Well, the, the park right? shut down on the Canadian side. You're right. So, so yeah, you're... I'm, I'm saying, like, it, it, if we're going to shut it down on the Canadian side, we've now forced everybody to meet in an area that's, that's quite a bit smaller, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So, it, so this would require action by, what, the U.S. government then? What? Yeah, and through our letter that I put out with uh, MLA Cadu yesterday is that uh, I think the Premier is um, is quite proud, and I think we should all be proud of the relationship that he's forged with uh, 
with the governor of Washington. And, and yeah. I think that he should put that to use and, and try and get a fix here because um, I don't think any health official um, or any elected leader would, would go past that park, see 75 tents of Canadians meeting with Americans and say, yeah, that's okay. Interesting issue, Trevor. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue to talk about Peace Arch uh, Park and uh, the tents that, that are set up there, the people gathering on the, the U.S. side of the park in the state park, should that park be shut down because of COVID? Let's go right to your phone calls now. Speak to John in Surrey. Hey, John. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Well, I think, uh, I think we're making this a lot more difficult than it needs to be. All we need is the RCMP to enforce the border as they do with the other 5,000 kilometers of the country. Okay, so you'd have, like, go down to that ditch or whatever where the borderline is and have cops stationed there so you can't go across? Well, actually, uh, I would have less cops there. Right now, we've got a huge squadron down there every day, and it's unnecessary. They're babysitting some people having sex in tents. (laughs) What we need to do is put up uh, uh, some temporary uh, 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 barricades at the four cross-sections, yeah. have uh, a few fewer police there, and simply make it clear that when border restrictions are in place, yeah. there's, no, uh, there's no crossing the, uh, the border at the so 49. So the, uh, the sex in the tents, like, what, is this some sort of cross-border orgy going on down there? Like, what's, <laughs> what's going on? Well, you know, these are really tough times. Uh, but I got to <laughs> tell you that... that um, there, there has been this uh, long-standing rule: no tents allowed in the park to ensure right. that there's not uh, contraband being swapped back and forth and uh. whatnot. However, uh, the the U.S. Park has not been able to. Um, they've had this phenomenon occur during the pandemic, and they've not been able to control it. And they finally have uh, thrown their hands up and said, "We can't control this," and and it's just become littered with tons of tents. And yeah, yeah. it is a big hmm. orgy kind of thing. But these are tough times, actually. Some of these folks are just uh, uh, family members trying to reunite. Well, and yeah. and and I am thankful that the governments have made it possible for families to connect. You can cross the border legally as a family member or even just as a lover. As long as you've been in a, a, a solid relationship for a year, you're allowed mm. to go back and forth across the border through customs. There are health provisions that you need to abide by for everyone's security. You know, the people yeah. that are going in the park are not long-lost lovers. These are people that are there on a daily, weekly basis, right? right. They're okay. constantly there. Thank you, John, for the call. Appreciate it. Let's go to Tony in Abbotsford on the line. Hey, Tony. Hi there. Hi. Um, it's not just Peace Arch Park. I don't know if everyone's aware. It's all the way up and down Zero Avenue. I witnessed a Super Bowl party on Super Bowl night where there must have been 20 people on both sides in the middle of the ditch watching it on cell phones, passing beers around and whatever <laughs> else. Wow. As well, uh, in the summer, I witnessed a huge barbecue with barbecues set up right in the middle. So uh, to me, it's poor leadership from Oregon, and also I believe he's opportunistic when he makes his approach to COVID. I mean, you look at him running an election in the middle of a virus. What was yeah. that? Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Thank you, Tony. Let's go to Kevin in Vancouver. Hey, Kevin. Hey. So the reason I'm calling in is because it, I think everybody's uh, forgetting that there, nobody wants to go sit in a tent when it's you know zero degrees out. Um, you've got a couple. They haven't seen each other for a year. 
they want to go hang out. Um, you know what? If you're wealthy, you hop on an airplane, you go rent a hotel. You know, there's so many things that people can do when they have money. If you're, you know, if you're a broke, you know, young couple, what are you going to do? You haven't seen each other for a year. And, and yeah. I think uh, everybody needs to relax a little bit. Nobody wants to be in a tent in winter. It's, uh, this is not something that's fun. Okay, Kevin, thank you for that. Kristen in Maple Ridge. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Mike. Hi, what do you think? Um, I think that the less they enforce their own policies and procedures, it makes it harder for all the people that are actually following the public health orders to continue following them. You mean you know, like I think if there's yeah. blatant I think if there's blatant disregard for the public health orders, yeah. Why why is everybody else continuing to follow them? You can't have somebody come over to your house and set up a tent in your backyard, but you can go to the Peace Arch border crossing and set up a tent and that's fine. So you need like tough you need a tougher, more consistent crackdown. So I, I agree. And for yeah, Horgan to yeah. just completely absolve himself of any responsibility it definitely shows a lack of leadership. Yeah, I mean, he basically just shrugged it off yesterday and made it made a couple of jokes, really, about it. Let's go to Doug in Vancouver. Hey, Doug. Hey, nice to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, I was of the same opinion as John there about the border restrictions, and then I realized that we actually provincially already have this in place. If they go down across the border, they're traveling. When they come back, they have to quarantine for 14 days. Can we not enforce that? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, if you go down there to the state side of the park, do, does the quarantine kick in when you come back? I'm not, I'm not totally certain. Carol in Surrey, 30 seconds. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Um, Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my job takes me down there about once a month um, just and driving. And, I mean, I don't know about closing it, but, I mean, I was shocked at the amount of people there. And I didn't see a whole lot of social distancing going on. Now, maybe they're all part of the same, but it was sef- definitely more than six people. Okay. Um, and I just wonder, too, though, like, can't the city of Surrey or whatever um, put in, uh, you know, temporary during this COVID thing, um, permit parking? Because I would Good. hate to live down there. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about electric vehicle sales in Canada now lagging far behind other countries, notably Norway, which is the undisputed global leader when it comes to the sale of electric vehicles. And this one really got put on the public radar during the Super Bowl. Did you see that ad with Will Ferrell? Uh, General Motors ad trying to promote electric vehicle sales in the United States going after Norway here. Let's have a listen to that one again. Here it is. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the U.S.? Norway. (laughs) Well, I won't stand for it. Come on. Never mind. With GM's new Ultium battery, we're going to crush those losers. Crush them! Let's go, America. Okay, if you take a look at the stats in Norway, yeah, they got huge electric vehicle sales. I think it's over 50% of new vehicle sales there in Norway or electric vehicles. Compare that to Canada, way, way behind. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Marin Smith, Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada, Co-Chair of BC's Climate Solutions Council. Very pleased to welcome Marin to the show. Hi. Hi there. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's talk about the the vehicle sales in Canada. Like Norway, I was reading one report that said new vehicle sales in Norway is like 54% electric. Is that about right? That's about right. And in fact, they crushed it in December, 67%. Wow. Wow. They've really gone full full ahead there with uh, electric vehicles for sure. Now, how does that compare to Canada? What are the percentage sales of electric vehicles in Canada right now? 
Well, uh, we are buying some overall nationally. It's 3%. So that's very, very low compared to Norway. Here in British Columbia, we're doing a lot better. It's 9%. uh, And it was about 8% in Quebec. And that's because Quebec and British Columbia have what's called a zero emission vehicle mandate. And that requires the car dealerships to sell a certain percentage of cars. And so the, you know, the, the cars get here because they've got to do it. And that's really, that's what's missing here in Canada is some sort of mandate like that, that requires dealerships to sell a certain percentage, which means they have to have them on the lot. Okay, why are electric vehicles so popular in Norway? Is it because the government's brought in incentives there for people to buy these vehicles? Yeah, they've done a great job in Norway. They brought in incentives, so they give them some money contribution to help equal out the difference in cost, but not just incentives. Um, You know, for the first 20 years, they had free parking if you had an electric vehicle. Um, They ended that a couple of years ago. No road taxes. Um, EVs get to use the bus lanes and they get discounts, at least 50% discounts on the ferries and on the toll roads. So they really made it attractive to go electric. Okay, Um, so that's way more than the incentives here in Canada, right? Because I know that if you do buy an electric vehicle here, there are government rebates and things you can access, correct? That's correct. Um, You know, when they did some polling in Norway, they found that all these extra things like free parking and discounts on the ferries, uh, getting to use the bus lanes and all of that, that was a bigger incentive for people to buy an electric vehicle hmm. than the, the dollars. But so here in Canada, the federal government's giving out a rebate. Actually, some polling was done yesterday by the uh, federal government, and it looks like most people don't even know that there's an incentive. So the hmm. federal government does. In British Columbia, the uh, provincial government adds to that as well. Right. Uh, they also give you a rebate to put a home charger in. So that's why we're doing so well here in BC. Okay, but you think they could do a lot better. I mean, the, the BC government has, has brought in a plan to transition to 100% electric vehicle sales by 2040. So that's almost 20 years from now, but still, we got a long way to go here. And there are interim goals in place there to get to that, get to that goal. But we, we seem to be kind of way behind. Or are we on target? Well, in BC... Uh, we're doing really well. In fact, I would okay. uh, suggest the government should move those targets up. You know, we had mm. 9% uh, new car sales were electric vehicles, 9% uh, last year. So we're already almost at our 2025 target. Um, okay. I think we could do it faster here. Um, nationally is where things are really slow, uh, 3%. Mm. And, you know, that's in part, like I was saying, there's really a supply problem in Canada There's uh, plenty of people, about 64% of Canadians say that they plan to buy an EV, they're inclined to buy one, they're considering it, uh, you know, or they'd be open to considering a hybrid. Right. What are the the percentage, do you know what the percentage sales of electric vehicles are in Alberta? Um, you know, I can't, I don't have that okay. number. I was, I was just, my head. I was just kind of curious to see if, you know, I, I, I suspect it would be less than, than British Columbia, but it just, I just wonder why maybe the Canadians are not adopting this more enthusiastically. Like one of the things that I hear from people as well, what about the, the battery life, the, the distance that people are going to drive? I mean, in some parts of the country, people have got long commutes, uh, you know, in, in really difficult driving conditions and, and cold weather. Um, 
what about the like are the batteries getting better like how far can you go on one charge these days oh man the the batteries are almost twice as good as they used to be a couple of years ago 350 400 kilometer range is normal that's not just a tesla but like a chevy bolt uh the nissan the new nissan leaf uh, uh, all of them are in that type of range now um, so really what the problem is, the study done in Canada in 2019 found that over 70% of car dealerships didn't have a single EV available to buy. They didn't have one on the lot that you could test drive. And if you wanted to get one, you were going to get put on a waiting list. It was going to take you months, you know, six months or more often to right. get an EV. Now, most people, when they walk in, they want to test drive. This is a new technology. How, how sure. are you going to buy an EV? There's not a lot of people that are ready to buy it without even giving it a spin. Right. One of the interesting things is you find anybody who tr- tries an EV usually jumps into it, and once you've driven one, you see how much better they perform. But, so that's the big obstacle in Canada is having them here. And as the U.S., you know, under Biden, is really moving forward on electric vehicles quickly, the supply is going to get sucked down there as well because mm. they're making clear that they are moving forward on their climate target. So we need to get that zero emission vehicle mandate here nationally so that would have the incentives. Uh, there's a lot of money getting put into building ex- infrastructure, but we need to get the supply. Right. And for that supply, like the mandate that you're, you, you'd like to see brought in, that would what would that do? That would force dealerships, like dealerships who would be required to offer a certain percentage of their new cars as electric vehicles? Is that how that would work? That's how that works. Yeah. Okay. And so it doesn't mean that every single dealership, so, you know, so northern BC, uh, you know, they don't have to, each dealership doesn't have to sell it, but, you know, Toyota, as a, all their dealerships, Ford, all their dealerships uh, for the province. And it's really worked out extremely well. Um, you know, we don't see the dealerships don't love it, uh, but once it's in place, we're actually not finding that there's a problem there. Okay. Speaking of Marin Smith, Clean Energy Canada, what about the the environmental value of these vehicles? I mean, everybody can understand if you have electric vehicles, obviously you're not having emissions from the vehicles themselves as they operate, but. You know, there, there continues to be pushback about, well, how green are these electric vehicles really when they produce those batteries? Don't they got to dig up all these heavy metals? Uh, what about the, the production of the vehicles producing emissions? What if the, the electricity that you need to charge up your battery, what if that's produced by coal-burning plants, not so much in B.C., but in other provinces? Like, how do you respond to that when people say, well... Are these things really better for the environment? Yeah, I say, well, let's look at the facts. All so right. uh, anywhere in Canada, if you drive an electric vehicle, it's going to be less emissions. Even provinces like Alberta that have a lot of coal-fired electricity still, uh, it would be 16% less emissions. But then somewhere like British Columbia, Manitoba, Quebec, I you're reducing your emissions by 98 to 100%. That's significant. Um, so anywhere in Canada, you're also going to save money anywhere in mm. Canada because it costs less to operate. And we're talking anywhere from here in BC, it's about $1,800 a year uh, to you know $1,200 a year, depending on what the price of electricity is in your province and how far you drive, but anywhere between $1,000 and $1,800 a year. 
So what, that's about, another... what about the uh, what about the rare earth minerals and stuff that go into the batteries that we hear about? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm really glad that there's a lot more focus on that now. Uh, we are seeing that all of the battery manufacturers are looking at ensuring how are we going to recycle these batteries? How are we going to make sure that these are coming from sustainable supplies? And this is where there's actually an opportunity for Canada, is that we have all of those uh, minerals, lithium, cobalt, copper, uh, nickel, things that are needed for electric vehicle battery production. Uh, we can produce them in ways that are ethical and environmentally sustainable. Uh, we could invest so that we were actually producing in them in ways that were low carbon because we have so much clean electricity, uh, zero emission electricity in Canada. And so we need to pull all of those things together. And this is a great opportunity to help create more jobs in Canada. You know, as the world's moving to cleaner energies, uh, there's been concerns about the oil and gas workers and those jobs declining as, as the world's going to be using less fossil fuels. But we actually have some opportunities here to create new areas of jobs. And they're, they're looking at uh, things like copper and nickel. Right really taking off. But I would agree with you that we need to make sure that those rare earth metals are being yeah. mined in ways that are ethical and sustainable. Okay, it's an interesting discussion, and I think it's going. we're going to be hearing more about this issue in the, in the times ahead. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, and I uh, look forward to talking about it more because you're right. Sure. Electric vehicles are here to stay, and they're taking off in big way. All right, lots of phone calls on electric vehicles. Let's go right to them. Ian on Vancouver Island. Hi, Ian. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Awesome. I'm a huge fan of your show. First time calling in. I just want to let you know, um, I have a Chevy Bolt EV. Um, it's a little bit harder in the colder temperatures right now. A huge learning curve, right? You know, I, I drive across Vancouver Island, but we have a lot of EV chargers here, which is nice. So if I'm ever low, I can just go for a charge. It's like about 40 minutes for me to get mm. to like 300 kilometers. So it's not too, too bad. How does the cold, um, how does the cold weather affect it? Um, it's battery temperature. So my uh, Chevy Bolt says it need like it says the optimal temperature is like ten to twenty degrees. So right yeah. now in the Nimo it's like minus two. So my in the summer I was getting four hundred kilometers. Now I'm getting about like two ninety eight on a full charge. Ah. So yeah, you definitely lose some range there. I um, I drive everywhere for work. So switching to an EV, I, I was doing oil changes every month at ninety dollars yeah. a uh, month. No more gas. So. I'm saving a ton of money, and I'm, I've just been loving it. So Thanks, Ian. Thank you very much for the call. Yeah, I mean, not going to the gas station anymore it was, certainly seems attractive to a lot of people. Fred in Port Moody. Hi there. I'm Hi. all for electric cars and putting less pollution into the environment. What I have an issue with is my municipality providing free charging stations at the local sports arenas, and I'll go down there, and there will be no cars in the parking lot except one electric car, charging up either at the community center or at the ice rink, and eventually that comes to me in the way of higher taxes for my municipality. So you think that you should pay for your own charger at your own home? Oh, totally. Yeah. If you're going to buy an electric car, then put a charger in your house somewhere and charge your car. I don't think municipalities should be charging the taxpayers who are getting hit on every front with another charge that they bury into the taxes. Okay, Fred, thanks for that. Let's go to Keith in Port Moody. Hey, Keith, what do you think? Uh, overall, I've got an EV. I've had it for three weeks, and the, and the experience has been really positive. Um, right. The technology that goes into these things makes uh, internal combustion engine driving seem really stupid 
actually. Yeah. <laughs> but and, uh, just a point of correction to your last caller, the, the facilities that are in Port Moody do charge a dollar or two dollars an hour depending oh. on how long you're there, and the fast oh. charger that's there is $3.15 for 15 minutes. Okay, good to know, good to know. Okay, thank you for that. Keep phoning me on it, 604-280-9898, uh, star 9898 on your cell. Peter in Surrey. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Listen, we're not we're not there yet as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm a business guy, I've got work vehicles. I actually live in Chilliwack, so I can live a little bit more comfortably. I work in Surrey, you know, I'm traveling everywhere. And, you know, Norway's a bad example. It's a small country. I mean, we were on our motorcycles in the summer up the coast. People, depending where they came from, they had to stop, and there had to be a line up in, at, uh, at the stop up there at the top of the coast to charge them. And it just doesn't make any sense. I think there's more to it. And then you have the charging stations, you have the electricity, you have changing the batteries whenever your car runs out. It's not that much cheaper all the time. I don't think technology's quite there yet. And for a lot of people, and what about all these high-rises in Vancouver that maybe have five yeah. charging stations, they have 100 yeah. people living there? How are they going to do that? Maybe for some people downtown, but if you travel a lot in your business and you want to go into the interior, then it doesn't make sense. So I think okay. it's not quite there where we are yet. Peter, thanks for the call. Let's squeeze in one more here. Ray and Langley. Ray, you got 30 seconds. Your last caller hit it. The car should have standardized batteries to the replaceable. So we go to the battery station and change the battery, just like we do with our drills, etc. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, happening at this hour, we've got the devastating overdose numbers just coming in for last year from Lisa LaPointe, BC's chief coroner. I think we've got a clip of the chief coroner here, Lisa LaPointe. Let's have a little listen to that right now. If we have in 2020, 1,716 lives were lost. This represents the most deaths ever in a single year in this province due to an unnatural cause and an alarming death rate of 33.4 per 100,000 people. Okay, that's Lisa LaPointe, BC's chief coroner, just in the past hour announcing a record overdose death rate in the province in 2020. Make sure you keep it locked here on CKNW for continuing coverage of that story. Jill Bennett uh, will be on this on her show. She'll be speaking to Guy Felicella. He's a harm reduction advocate at the top of her show. What can be done to turn these numbers around? That's after the noon news on CKNW. Uh, let's talk now, though, about that major development in Saudi Arabia, and that is the release from prison of women's rights activist Lujen Al-Hathlul. She is a world-renowned activist. Her imprisonment triggered protests all around the world. She's got a connection right here to Vancouver. She graduated from UBC. She has finally been released from jail after a more than a thousand days in a Saudi jail. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. It is a tremendous joy to see. Smiling, safe, and finally home. Family and friends of Lujane Al-Hathlul have been waiting years for this moment. I mean, she's been released after 1,001 days in prison, and I think that's a lot to celebrate. And the news is traveling fast. Her sister tweeting a photo of a video chat captioned, Lujane is home. The 31-year-old University of British Columbia graduate is one of Saudi Arabia's most prominent women's rights campaigners. She was arrested in May of 2018, but just recently sentenced to nearly six years in prison back in December. During her pretrial detention, she allegedly endured torture, solitary confinement, 
and sexual abuse, the charges seeking to change the Saudi political system and harming national security after publicly opposing the kingdom's now rescinded law that barred women from driving. Okay, I'm totally impressed with this woman. I just think she's absolutely amazing. I'm really incredibly impressed with her courage. You might remember that she originally rose to prominence when she live-streamed herself breaking Saudi, Arab Saudi Arabia's female driving ban by driving across the border from the United Arab Emirates, and she went to jail for 70 days for doing That's what they do in this country, 70 days for driving unbelievable over a thousand days in prison she is finally released from jail let's talk about this now with my guest yasmin mohammed she is a canadian human rights advocate she advocates for the rights of women living in with an islamic majority countries and i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show yasmin thanks a lot for coming on thank you so much for having me mike Yasmin, I know you're a UBC grad too, so you share an uh, alumnus there with uh, with Lujan. Can you tell me your your reaction when you heard that she'd been released from jail? Oh, I I'm just over the moon. I'm so so incredibly happy. It's you know it's an absolute joy to see her free. We weren't sure that we were going to see this happen, of course, because the Saudi government was you know their, their propaganda campaign against her was. So fierce yeah. that we thought that they would never want to, you know, it, at this point they have to save face because they're letting her go and they're admitting that they were wrong in in imprisoning her. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad to see that. It's all because of international support right. and, um, yeah, and, and Biden's insistence and it, it's really great to see. Yeah, it really is amazing. And when you take a look at the charges that she was facing in Saudi Arabia, she had been charged with agitating for change. Can you imagine that? That yeah. That's a crime in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Agitating for change. Unbelievable. Pursuing a foreign agenda. This was another charge that she faced. Using the internet to harm public mm -hmm. order. Good Lord. And she was in jail for over a thousand years and allegedly tortured and sexually assaulted while she was in jail. This is unbelievable. I, I'm really amazed by her courage. Uh, I know you've, you're sort of familiar with her family, right? What do you, you think is going through their minds right now? They are over the moon as well, but it's tinged with sadness, of course, because they're concerned about the fact that she's still under probation for three years and right. she is barred from traveling for five years. She can't speak to the media. You know, she's, she's being restricted in many ways by the Saudi government. But, of course, they're happy to have her home. They're happy to see her smiling face. In the past, when they would ask her, how are you doing? She'd have to say, I'm doing fine, because as she's had later admitted, you know, they'd be standing next to her ready to electrocute her or in some other way torture her so of course she had to put on a fake smile and say yes i'm fine everything is fine right. and uh, of course nothing was fine right so she is still in saudi arabia right like she's been released from jail but her parents are in saudi right so she has been reunited with her parents but still in saudi arabia right that's correct and yeah. she cannot leave saudi arabia yeah so she's not really totally free because she's not allowed to leave the country that's right. She's not yeah. allowed to leave the country, and she's being restricted in many ways. 
Right. Can you talk a little bit, Yasmin, about Saudi Arabia and and what women face there? Uh, and you've been such a brave advocate yourself oh. on on this. I mean, what what would you highlight for the listeners what women face there uh, living in that country? Well, one of the things that Lou Jane fought against was driving, as you mentioned, yeah. and another thing that she fought against was the um, the laws, the guardianship laws that they had in Saudi Arabia, which essentially treated women as dependents, as children. They could be grown women, you know, mothers, grandmothers in their 50s and 60s. It doesn't matter. They're still treated like dependents. They still need a male guardian to decide things for them, to open a bank account, whether they're going to work, whether they're going to travel, you know, anything needs to be decided by a man. And so that was another thing that Lujain fought against. And the thing that is happening in Saudi Arabia right now is these reforms are happening slowly yet surely. So now women are allowed to drive, of course, there's with stipulations, but they are allowed to drive. Now that guardianship law has been abolished for women over 18. They're now treated like adults to a certain extent. They're not equal, of course, but it's better than it used to be. So all of these things that Lujane has fought for, they're happening, you know, Women no longer are going to prison for not wearing a hijab. That still happens in Iran, of course. But in Saudi Arabia, there are progresses happening. But instead of celebrating the women and the men that pushed for these progresses to happen, those people are being imprisoned. So Da'is Bedoui, who is a man whose wife is in Quebec and his three children are in Quebec as well. Um, They're all Canadian citizens now. He's in prison for simply blogging about liberalism, blogging about humanism. And, you know, a lot of the things that he talked about way back when are now sort of in the mainstream of Saudi Arabian conversation, yet he's still in prison. So it it feels like these reforms are not genuine, you know, because if you really genuinely do want to progress your country. You're not going to be just doing all of these little window dressings to appease the international community that keep on calling you a hypocrite. But you would actually be releasing these prisoners who were imprisoned for no reason other than having free thought, for for using their minds, for critically thinking, for, I mean, he, he... they're being attacked for things like terrorism and whatnot. These are people that were just, you know, free thinkers. That's yep. it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, absolutely inc- it's absolutely incredible. Speaking to Yasmin Mohammed about the release in Saudi Arabia of Lujain Al-Hathlul, she spent more than a thousand days in a Saudi prison. We just got one minute left here, Yasmin. I mean, it's wonderful that we can celebrate, celebrate the release of this brave woman from a Saudi prison especially when she's got the local connection here in Vancouver. But there are plenty of other women activists still behind bars there, right? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Many women were arrested at the same time as Jane, one of them being Ra'af Bedoui's sister, Samar Bedoui, and she's still in prison too, along with many other feminists as well. So the thing with Jane is that gratefully she was very high profile. I mean, I've seen photos with her and Michelle Obama, photos with her and Hillary Clinton and even Meghan Markle. So she had a lot of people behind her, and that's why she's free today. But there are a lot of other feminists that are still behind bars in Saudi Arabia that unfortunately aren't 
able to get Good. the same amount of attention. Okay, we hope to hear about more releases in the days ahead. Thank you for the great advocacy and work that you do on this file, Yasmin. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back. Here we go now with the COVID crackdown in BC. We've seen hundreds of tickets issued against accused COVID rule breakers in the province. Everything from breaking quarantine rules or hosting or attending group gatherings. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines pending here against people who got whacked with these tickets. Remember what Premier John Horgan said. He said if you break the rules, they're going to come and get you. Here's Horgan. You better behave appropriately. You better follow our public health guidelines or we'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. Oh, yeah, they'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. They will bring the hammer down. But check this out now. How many people are actually paying these fines? Turns out only about 12% of the fines have actually been paid so far. And here's another interesting statistic. More than half of the people who have received these tickets are fighting the power. They're fighting back and disputing these tickets in court. All right, let's talk about it now with my guest, Sarah Lehman, is a lawyer for the Sarah Lehman Law Group. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Sarah, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, Sarah, in your experience, when people get these tickets, if they decide to fight them in court, that sounds like a very large percentage of people who are deciding to dispute these tickets, over 50%. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, people do very frequently decide to dispute tickets for a variety of different reasons. And we see this all the time with traffic tickets. Under the Motor Vehicle Act, a lot of people elect to dispute those allegations. So it's not that unusual, actually, I don't think, to see this many people disputing them, particularly so when this is a new legislative scheme that's come into effect. And so a lot of people are probably wondering, you know, what's going to happen with it down the road and whether or not there's a potential out for them. Right. Okay. What kind of typical fines are people facing here if they if they get one of these tickets? Well, most people, I think, are getting um, tickets that are in the smaller amount, maybe in the range of about two to three hundred dollars. The right. bigger fines that people are getting are people who are you know allegedly hosting parties or gatherings, uh, and those people are getting. Uh, fines are closer to the $2,000 range. Wow. Okay. So if you go to court to fight these tickets, what are the chances of winning? Like, has anyone been able to successfully fight back against these tickets so far? Well, that's a great question because none of these tickets have made it to court yet, as far as I'm aware. It usually takes at least six months to schedule a court date for these types of hearings. And in some jurisdictions, it can take up to a year. So it will take a while to see these actually turn up at our courts. Could that be a factor, I wonder, in people's minds if they they get hit with one of these tickets? Maybe they're thinking, well, if if I plead not guilty or I dispute it, I I could put it off for a long time. Sure. And that's one of the reasons people dispute other tickets, again, like traffic tickets, or which we're much more familiar with, because they want to put off the penalty. Maybe they need to buy some more time for themselves to get enough money to pay the fine. Maybe they just want to try their hand in court, see what happens, if they can get a better deal, even a fine reduction. These things could be available to those who dispute the tickets. Okay, I'm speaking to lawyer Sarah Lehman here about COVID tickets in BC. What are the, uh, is there a constitutional argument here? Like, could people go to court and try to argue that somehow that these tickets are against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Like, if they've been told you're breaking quarantine or, you're, or you went to a party, does that contravene maybe your charter rights? Is that possible? Sure. I mean, I do expect that people will be trying to mount different charter challenges to the various COVID provisions that have been passed over the last year. 
But it is going to take a long time for that to actually work its way to the court system. These are, by and large, bylaw tickets. And so they're going to end up at the first appearance in front of a justice of the peace who doesn't have any jurisdiction to hear those types of arguments. So it will then need to be referred to B.C. Supreme Court and then likely to another court again for further hearings. All right. We've heard from the province that if people do not pay the fines within a a set time, then a collection agency is going to come after you, right? Is is that how it works? Like if you don't pay maybe some sort of private private, uh, server, process server or something comes comes and tries to get the money from you? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's been going on for uh, a long time. Again, under other bylaw legislation uh, that exists. But that's for people who don't dispute their ticket and also don't pay the fine. So once a particular period of time, it's usually 30 days, elapses, and a person has taken no action, whether payment or disputing, then it will be automatically referred to collections because that person is deemed to be guilty of the offense and the fine becomes payable. Okay, I guess a lot of people are looking at this and wondering if the rules are effective, if the penalties are effective during this public health emergency we got. I mean, you got the government talking tough, and we we just played that clip from John Horgan. Oh, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. But in your experience as a lawyer, like, are, are most people confident that they can they can beat the rap here? I mean, can they go in front of a judge and, and maybe have some of these tickets over, overturned? I wonder if that's even possible at this point. Yeah, and I mean, that is the million-dollar question, really. You know, what's going to happen with these tickets? Are they actually going to go all the way? You know, will people have viable defenses to them? We really don't know because it's brand-new legislation, which hasn't been tested yet or challenged yet in court. So, again, I think it's reasonable for some people to decide to ultimately dispute them to see what happens down the road. Yeah, are we seeing similar uh, similar situations in other provinces? or In other provinces, they're handing out a lot of tickets, too? Are people fighting back? Certainly. I mean, wherever tickets are being handed out, people are going to file them into dispute. That's just the way it goes. Uh, whenever, whenever our government passes laws, they have to be prepared for those laws to be challenged. And yeah. so I think that's an important element here. It keeps our government and our laws accountable. Okay, Sarah, last question for you. If people don't pay these fines, I mean, the government is saying, we're going to hunt you down, we're going to come and get you. What are the chances that the government really goes to the wall to try and collect a, you know, a $230 fine? Or do you think it, it's possible that they just, the government just r- throws their hands up and writes these tickets off? Or do you think they'll really go after people and make them pay? Well, I mean, I guess we'll have to see what type of enforcement action they ultimately elect to take. But what I would say to people who receive these types of infractions is that you have to do something about it within the prescribed period to dispute it. Whether you decide to dispute it or you decide to pay it, just decide one way or the other, and then that way you won't have collections coming after you. Okay, interesting issue, Sarah. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks so much for having me.